Hello, and welcome to SF Crossing the Gulf. I'm Karen Burnham. And I'm Karen Lord. And we are here today to interview the one and only Ted Chang, who's coming to us from Seattle. Ted? Hello. Hey. So we're here specifically to talk about a story that you published in 2015 called The Great Silence. And the story was part of a of an art installation that I believe centered on on Arecibo, the telescope at Arecibo, and the parrots around Arecibo. Could you tell us a little bit about that art project and how you maybe came to be involved in it? Sure, sure. So uh, it actually starts uh, back in uh, 2011. I attended a, a conference called Bridge the Gap, and it was designed to increase... A dialogue between the arts and the sciences. Hmm. And so I was one of the participants, and another participant was Jennifer Alora, who is half of the um, artist duo uh, Alora and Casadilla. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so we met there, and a couple years later, or I guess I think uh, more like 2014, uh, she um, she emailed me saying that. Um, she and uh, Guillermo were working on a um, – they had a video uh, video installation that they wanted to uh, put together. Um, and they were wondering if I would collaborate with them on it. What they envisioned was a multi-screen uh, video installation. They wanted one screen to show the, the radio telescope at Arecibo and another screen to show – these Puerto Rican parrots that live well on the same island as the Arecibo Telescope in Puerto Rico, um, and they are an endangered species of parrot. And uh, and they envisioned a third screen would show text, and they wanted me to write uh, the text. What they had in mind was, they said, a, a kind of fable uh, told from the point of view of one of the parrots. Hmm. So I initially, um, I was, uh, I was, I was really uncertain about uh, saying yes because, uh, you know, I'd never done anything like that before. Um, it seemed really far removed from the type of fiction I usually write. Mm-hmm. But um, you know, we exchanged some email, and I eventually thought, all right, I will, I will give it a try. And so that, uh, so I, I wrote, I wrote text for, uh, for their video installation. Eventually it was, it was first exhibited in, in Philadelphia, um, as part of a, an exhibition of their work. And yeah, they called, they called the piece, uh, The Great Silence. And then in 2015, Alora and Casadilla were asked by, uh, an art journal, Eflux, to contribute something because because uh, they the artists they had work in the uh, Venice Biennale uh, the journal wanted uh, something from them and they suggested printing the text of the of the video installation as a standalone piece mm. uh, I was like um, okay sure <laughs> uh, and so that's how that uh, sh- short story uh, came to be 
Okay. Well, this this is um this is fascinating to me because the way you describe it, the text is really an integral part of the installation. Um, it was it was meant to be experienced along with the other two screens. It was it was part of it. So, what's it like then having it printed, reprinted separately? I mean, did you have any concerns with it being read and experienced outside of the context of those other two screens? Um, yes, yes, I did. Uh, when they initially uh, suggested uh, that we just print the text by itself, I at first I thought, you know, is that will that even work? <laughs> um, it, I mean, it's it seemed like, yeah, I guess I guess it, it would work. Uh, I I do. I, I mean, I should say that while it was written with the intention of it uh, being displayed with these, you know, uh, video images. I didn't have the video images when I wrote the piece. Ah, um, okay. They were still they were still shooting their uh, their footage, mm -hmm. and so I mean I saw some test footage, but I did not know what uh, it was going to look like. So I just sort of had to imagine, you know, like maybe this will work in you know as an accompaniment to these other video screens. Mm -hmm. So I didn't, yeah, I I it, it, I did not write it uh, specifically to be you know keyed to specific images because um, I didn't know what they were. They didn't exist at the time that I wrote it. Mm -hmm. um, I think that for those who have seen the the installation, and I, I should I should also say, like the original installation, it is a uh, three-screen version, but they got a request for a, a, a single-screen version mm -hmm. so that it could be more easily displayed because um, their, their three-screen version you actually can't see all three screens at once. Uh, wow. They're arranged in a triangle, and mm -hmm. so you stand in the middle. And um, their idea was that you would be sort of enveloped by these images. They later produced a one-screen version of it. Mm -hmm. I think you know they. After I wrote the text, I think they they used it as you know kind of a, a scaffolding when they edited their video images. Mm -hmm. Well, that's fantastic. Uh, so I think because, that... Sorry, go ahead. Yes. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. No, that's fantastic because oh. it's almost that your story is is um becomes as it were the spine of it because they are actually targeting their video, editing their video in response to that, which is a different situation from the other way around, which I think I would have me as an author more fearful. So I can see why it it would work as a standalone, considering the the order in which it was created. Yeah. So I guess. Um... It it works as an installation because they you know they had the text when they were editing the footage, mm -hmm. and yeah, and that was that was how I had you know I had experienced it when I went to I went to Philadelphia to the opening and I saw it and I thought it worked very well. Uh, yeah, I, I wasn't sure how well it would work on its own, but it seemed like it 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 does work okay <laughs> by itself. Mm -hmm. Now, Karen, do you mind if I, I I believe you mentioned that you'd also written for a project that was that was more like an art installation as well do you yes, have some experience um, with this well some some slight experience in the sense that it's um different different kind of approach but there's the dia art foundation they had an installation called um particulates by rita mcbride and nalo hopkinson um was um commissioned to edit an anthology of pieces in response to to this installation it's basically a um, a kind of um, light and mist lasers um, in a huge dark 
room. Um, and when you look at it, it's, um, it's just like a lot of like green lines looking as if they're in a, do you remember what they call the spirograph things when you used to have those, um, mm -hmm. geometric, um, cord, cord, um, art things? It's, it almost looks like that. So we had, there was an anthology, but then, as I said, the, the, the um, an order of, of creation was definitely that the installation was in place. And we viewed it, and obviously I'm nowhere near New York right now, so there was a live stream, so you could see it in motion on the live stream. And you were to, to look at this thing, for those who could get to the installation, they actually went in and experienced it in person, and then write something based on it. And uh, and yes, I, I do have a situation where it might be taken out from that and and published as a standalone at some point later this year. And I was like, <laughs> because when you are when you respond to a piece of art it does feel a bit different from what you usually create not in a bad way at all you know it's, it's sometimes it's it's good to be stretched but you do feel a different um flavor to it because it's not just your creation it's more uh of an extreme example but it is it raises an example of something which does go on in science fiction has gone on on in science fiction where in the past, in the magazines, editors might commission stories based on art. Okay. They had they had gotten a piece, uh, they'd gotten a, a painting from an artist. They were going to use it as the cover for an issue of a magazine, and so they would ask a writer to write a story to fit that piece of art. Okay. Um, this is this is you know this is not the same thing, but uh. I think that there is a, uh, I mean, there are precedents within genre fiction, writing in response to a piece of visual art, mm -hmm. um, sort of outside of, you know, genre fiction. I think writers are sometimes asked to, uh, contribute to, for, to some, you know, museum writing something in response to an art, uh, a piece of art. Mm-hmm. And then actually I, I ran into a, a kind of interesting, how do you say, collaboration going the other way. Uh, Slate has a science fictional section going on right now called Future Tense. And what they're doing is they're taking a theme, commissioning some science fiction stories to go along with that theme, and then commissioning a nonfiction essay by a scientist to go along with the fiction pieces. Hmm. And that could that's be scary. an interesting pairing. Um, <laughs> it, you know, honestly, the, the, the one pair that I read last summer, um, uh, Maureen McHugh wrote a story, and it was on the theme of sport, and she wrote one called Starfish. Mm -hmm. uh, that was very good. It was very near future. And, and I feel like that, that kind of uh, collaboration also can be, you know, it, it can be fruitful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. I think, and I think we're seeing more, more projects uh, of that sort lately. I think that there are there are a few uh, endeavors where they're trying to get uh, science fiction writers and scientists to uh, uh, collaborate. Mm -hmm. Now, yeah. along that same line of of you know, as you mentioned, the intersection between the arts and the sciences and that kind of collaboration. What sort of research did you do? for this story once it was proposed to you, once the, the sort of idea was proposed to you? I mean, how much did you have to, to dig into to those parrots, for instance? <laughs> I, I, did, I did a bunch of reading on parrots in, uh, 
parrots and birds, birds in general, and parrots in particular. I didn't re, I didn't uh, do any research uh, specifically about the Puerto Rican parrot. Yeah, I did do some reading about the fact that uh, I learned that you know that a number of birds have contact calls where they identify each other. They're basically repeating, like one bird will repeat another bird's contact call in order to get that bird's attention. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also read Irene Pepperberg's book, uh, Alex, Alex and Me, mm-hmm. where she talks about her, her many years of uh, training Alex, the African gray parrot. So, you know, I, 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 I did a, a fair amount of reading on parrots as an example of uh, animal communication. Mm-hmm. Sorry, just an aside, um, Karen. I'm reminded of our podcast with, with Kitch, Kitch Johnson when she was talking about the amount of research she did on chickens. <laughs> for, yeah. for her short story, it's just amazing the things that authors, that writers, end up having to look into when they want to really bring a story together. Sorry, just go ahead. Yeah. Well, having said that, though, how intelligent would you say parrots are? I mean, you know, you've you've told a story which is. Um, you can see that the narrator has intelligence, but I was wondering whether the way you were portraying that intelligence, were you trying to portray a different intelligence or were you trying to portray a different degree of intelligence? Because it's one thing to say, you know, this is an alien intelligence, an intelligence that's not human. And there's another thing to say, this is a kind of intelligence, say, to a human toddler level, four-year-old level. So, so which one was, was being portrayed in the story? Are we looking at different intelligence or slightly um, lower. I don't want to use the word lower, <laughs> but yes, yeah, a, a sort of a, a a sort of a younger or less developed intelligence than than what we would think of as a grown human intelligence. Well, uh, yeah, you know, I, I should of course say that you know it is a piece of fiction, and you know it was intended as kind of a fable. So mm-hmm. uh, trying to you know make a serious claim that that parrots are capable of you know this kind of cognition. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, based on reading Irene Pepperberg's book. You know, I am convinced that, you know, that Alex was able to understand language in a way that, you know, the vast majority of parrots do not. Mm-hmm. Um, not that, uh, well, and I guess sort of more generally reading more about animal communication, I grew to appreciate the fact that lots of different animals, uh, lots of different species of animals do seem capable of much more sophisticated communication than we normally give them credit for. Mm. Um, mostly because, you know, um, we're not really looking for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're not l- observing them closely enough. With a close observation, uh, you can, you can see all sorts of, uh, sophisticated behavior, you know, even in, uh, mice and rats. I don't mean that they're gonna start, you know, Using sign language like chimpanzees, but <laughs> that they are their level of of uh, experience and you know sort of awareness of their environment and their responses to their environment and their responses to each other are more sophisticated than most of us would probably give them credit for because we're not really uh, we're not really looking at them that closely. But when biologists, uh, animal behaviorists, when they look closely, they find a lot of uh, very sophisticated behavior. And, okay, so with regard to the question of, you know, are 
do they, do they do parrots have an intelligence that's different than humans or you know, I think that they you know, you know they do they definitely have a you know, I think you know intelligence is serving sort of a somewhat different purpose for them than for humans mm-hmm. um in general you know it's sort of a mystery why human intelligence evolved uh the way it did you know we don't have a really you know we have we have some theories but we don't have a really good answer for why humans are sort of as smart as they are you know because uh, it's it's pretty clear that you know you don't need to be as smart as humans in order to thrive on the african savanna mm-hmm. you know lots of animals do perfectly well there without being like humans mm-hmm. So yeah, so human intelligence evolved for some, you know, some probably fa- fairly specific, you know, set of reasons. Intelligence in other species evolved for, you know, probably somewhat different reasons. And so I think, you know, uh, other species, you know, their their intelligence is probably, you know, very well suited for their needs and, you know, their situation. But yeah, it's not it's not quite the same as human intelligence. Uh, it's not it's not really designed to solve the same problems, even though we're, you know, we're not exactly sure what those problems that, uh, that human intelligence was uh, designed to solve are mm-hmm. in that regard. You know, it, it, we shouldn't, you know, n- necessarily think of animal intelligence as being sort of like a, a five-year-old version or a three-year-old <laughs> version of human mm-hmm. intelligence, because mm-hmm. um, uh, again, you know, it is, it has evolved for a, a different purpose. So, mm-hmm. you know, while there are a lot of similarities, it, I, I, I guess one analogy I, I think of is that, you know, like, yeah, there, there, you know, there are fish that, there are fish that only live in salt water, and there are mm-hmm. fish that only live in fresh water. And you know, we shouldn't say like, well, these fish that only live, that live in salt water, they aren't doing so good. You know, <laughs> they, you know, they are, they aren't as good as the like, yeah, because there's some fish that can sort of manage both environments. Okay, and it's like, mm-hmm. are these other fish? Are they really, you know, lesser versions of the fish that, you know, are more flexible? I don't think so. I think, you know, the fish that the fish that are perfectly well adapted to salt water, they do really well in salt water. That's mm-hmm. what they're for. Yeah, that um uh it's not appropriate to try and, you know, uh gauge them by a metric that um, you know, that they, you know, that was not intended for them. Mhm. I I like I like that answer because I do think it's a bit lazy. And, and maybe a bit, I don't know, is there such a term as human supremacist <laughs> to always want to, to rank animals in terms of how would they match up with a human? Because as you say, we're adapted to different things. Um, we're good at doing what we do and we do different things. So, so yes, I do like um, the approach where we can look at our narrator as a different, as an alien um, or at least non-human intelligence and not just as a, a smaller or younger human, which sometimes we do, especially with animals that we have as pets. We do think of pets as small children sometimes, which is not always helpful in terms of how they really operate. But but <laughs> hang on, I do have one more question about that. You'd mentioned that the text was made to go on a screen and you have some very, like, you have some very simple, powerful, short paragraphs was this all from the knowledge that this was going to be on a screen and you, you know, you couldn't like overload the screen as it were, because it had to be visually something that um, someone entering the installation could, could absorb fairly quickly. 
Oh, yes, yes, absolutely. Um, mm -hmm. It's not arranged in traditional paragraphs because there's there's a limit to how much text you can put on the screen at one time. Mm -hmm. There was there was some back and forth about after after I had written it. There was some back and forth about how much text could appear on the screen at any one time. Because mm -hmm. um, like I yeah I had tried to you know keep the you know keep the paragraphs very short. One of uh, Alora and Casadilla they worked with someone who does subtitling for mm -hmm. for film to break up the text and put it on screen and you know and we had some discussions about you know how to block it because um you know what sort of chunks we should put up because for subtitling dialogue on screen you know they have they have their own set of rules and conventions I did um, not know this so yeah they have they have a whole bunch of yeah just uh guidelines for how much text you can put on the screen at once mm -hmm. and yeah we had we had some discussion about bending those rules because <laughs> because this this is not you know this was not subtitling you know dialogue in a in a scene that this had uh these pieces like the paragraphs i figured you know they needed to stay on screen long enough for someone who was you know looking at two other screens you know they should be able to you know turn and look and not have the text vanish right away mm -hmm. the way it would if they were watching one screen continuously and you know the text was uh, accompanying a character speaking but yes uh <clears throat> to answer your question yeah you know, i definitely was conscious of the fact <clears throat> that it was going to appear on a screen and needed to be broken up into small chunks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it worked very well. Yeah, Thanks. absolutely. Yeah, and and it worked it worked so well with the voice too. I mean, uh, in in the introduction in the version that I saw, where Karen Johnson, uh, sorry, bleh, Karen Joy Fowler. Uh, wrote an introduction and she pointed out that it, it ends up having a, a a poetic effect, and I I think that's absolutely true. One other. Question I had getting back to the parrots themselves, you know, so much of of science fiction, especially near near future science fiction that we're seeing these days, really engages with the idea of the Anthropocene. You know, the idea that this era of the Earth is is being fundamentally shaped by human intervention and specifically the the extinction event that we're in the middle of. How? How did you decide how? I mean, the parrots in the piece, as you say, it, it is a fable. They're aware of their own more or less impending extinction. Um, how did you decide about the attitude that the parents would take about that? How how they feel about it? At some point, you know, I realized that I wanted to I wanted to end with the last words of Alex, the mm -hmm. African gray parrot. Yes, uh, and those are indeed, you know. Uh, the last words that he spoke to Irene Pepperberg. I knew, like, if I wanted to end with those words, I needed to to give the narrator an attitude that that would make the that's those final words suitable, mm -hmm. something that the narrator would say. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, so that was that was sort of my that was sort of my guiding principle. Because you know, I I had sort of you know considered some other 
possibilities that, you know, just are f- filled with rage as one possibility. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, I guess uh, that didn't seem that didn't seem as effective. So ha- having go- having Alex's last words be the end of the story uh, required a sort of a more more of a wistful or philosophical mm-hmm. attitude to uh, to what was happening, and one that was had the, one that had the um optimism about mm-hmm. what uh what humans might be capable of so yeah that uh in a lot of ways yeah i i, I figured yeah since since I, I wanted alex's last words to be um uh, the note to end on i i built the story with that in mind okay well, I, cool. I i really i really loved it because i felt both Hopeful and well chastised. <laughs> um, you, you use the word wistful. That's definitely part of it. But there was just there was just this feeling like you know you were still being. I don't want to say smacked on the wrist. That sounds a bit trivial. But you get the impression that you know there's they're still saying to you you know really you've messed up. But you're you're trying your best, Kadir. You know, and that 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 kind of made it more poignant than a full on rage. I think. I, I know um, when Karen and I were talking about this um, earlier this week, just, you know, to get our own thoughts together, one one little piece that, that stood out to both of us, um, it, there's a paragraph that says, human activity has brought my kind to the brink of extinction, but I don't blame them for it. They didn't do it maliciously. They just weren't paying attention. <laughs> and it... There's a there's a real sting there, but it yeah. is but it is uh, a, a more elegant or a more um, as, as you say it's it's not rage, but it is a definite you know it's a real awareness of what's what going it? on. Not surprised, not disappointed, angry, but disappointed. <laughs> yes. So um, <clears throat> at one point, the the piece was performed uh, as part of um, selected shorts on uh, public radio, and um, they had an actress do perform the story, mm-hmm. and um, she actually gave me a call to ask me about you know the tone that she should use, you know, <laughs> she, if I had any if I had any tips for her, mm-hmm. and and it it was not something that I had really articulate had ever really thought of before, um, but when we were talking, I did what I came up with was. You know, in some ways, it's uh, it's like a parent kind of chastising a child. Yeah. You have yeah you you have messed up, but I think you can do better. <laughs> yes. Right. Um, yeah. Which I think that you know yeah that is something that uh, we've probably all experienced you know from one end or the other. Yeah. You know, <laughs> and still hold and, the cringe in uh, our hearts. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And and yeah, and that, that seemed like yeah, I think uh, I think that would be that would be sort of the the tone that that I, I would I'd I'd like it delivered in. Although again, as I said, you know, uh, it was not something that I, I I had ever thought about beforehand when I was writing the story. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I have a question, and it's more of a an overarching question, not just about the story. Um, when the when the narrator when your your parrot narrator mentions human myths about using words to construct the universe or construct reality, 
I, I really felt this is something that we keep seeing in Ted's stories. This is this is a this is a real theme. You know, the idea that speaking a word into 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 the universe and and having it listened to in some ways is a, a sort of a a magic and a science that creates our reality. Um, so I was wondering, is this a deliberate choice that you make um, to choose that theme, to have that theme, or do you find yourself just just drawn to it naturally? You know, it just sort of becomes your signature motif in your and your stories. I guess one of the reasons that I thought I would give this project a try was because when when I was exchanging email with uh, Jennifer Alora, she talked about some of the themes that she hoped the story might address and she brought up the idea that that I think uh, Pythagorean mystics uh, used to chant to draw energy from the music of the spheres, mm-hmm. um, which is uh, which is not something that I had been aware of. But um, to me, that I guess that kind of I guess that that kind of resonated with my own interest in sort of the creative power of language. Mm-hmm. There. And I guess you know there is this there is this difference in that I guess what I what I think I'm more drawn to in my work has to do with more like language per se, whereas um, one of the things in the story about in in this one of the themes has to do with sound, mm-hmm. which is which is closely tied to language, but is not the same as language. Yes, that's true. Some of the things mentioned in the story have to do with uh, sound, in particular speech, or you know, sort of vocalizations, and mm-hmm. and the fact that parrots, as it says in the story, parrots are, are are vocal learners, and humans are vocal learners, and you know, most other species are not. You know, so the importance of sound uh, and speech. Yeah, like I said, it is not exactly the same as uh, a focus on language, but mm-hmm. it is it is uh, sort of adjacent to that. And so, uh, I'd say that the fact that that Jennifer Laura wanted the the piece to sort of engage with some of these ideas about speech and sound probably made it more interesting to me because of my own interest mm-hmm. in language. Okay, that's cool. Cool. Well, I have to say, I, I possibly should have mentioned this up front. We we haven't uh, summarized the story because, for one, it's it's relatively short, and for two, uh, we strongly recommend that you uh, that the listeners go out and read it. We will have links in the show notes as as this goes live. Ted, is there anything in particular? This is one of the more recent stories that you've written. Uh, is there anything that that we should be looking forward to from you? Is there? Um, I believe you've got a collection coming out this year, 2019, right? Uh, yes, yes. Uh, it'll my uh, my new collection will be coming out uh, in May. Oh, my year. birthday! May. Thank you. Okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, one question: Does it does it have a title now? Uh, the title of the collection is Exhalation. Ah, excellent. My, my my personal favorite, so I won't complain about that. And um, are there any new pieces in it that we should be on the lookout for? 
there'll be two stories in it which have not appeared uh, anywhere mm. before. Okay, excellent. So that is always something to look forward to. Uh, Karen, did you have anything else before we sort of brought this discussion to a close? <sighs> not that I can think of right now, except I, I really just want to say that I enjoy your stories. Um, this is We always talk about what hits us for a story that we bring to podcasts. And for me, it's a story that I can enjoy both as a reader and as a writer looking at the craft. And I really, really enjoy your stories at both levels of that. It's sort of like you read it and then you enjoy it and then you go back as, um, you know, examining the craft and you can just spend like a good, you know, 20 minutes discussing one paragraph and the background of that. <laughs> and and I like that. I like that a lot. It feels like I'm getting more than my money's worth. <laughs> so I just wanted to say that and thank you for it. Well, thanks. Thanks. Uh I, I I appreciate that and uh, uh, and yes I guess uh, I'm I'm glad I'm glad that I'm providing good value for for the money. <laughs> Excellent. Well, Ted, thank you so much for taking the time. We really appreciate mm -hmm. it. Uh, thanks for having me. Wonderful. So I believe, let's see, so we're, we'll bring this one to a close. In the next episode, uh, Karen actually has picked two stories that lean a little bit more towards the horror end Which of the spectrum so that we'll be discussing. Me. And then oh, we'll goodness. see. <laughs> and it's certainly not necessarily my bailiwick. So I I'm, I'm think this conversation is going to be particularly fascinating. Mm. And then we're also going to see if we can uh, wrangle an, another author interview to go with it. So more to look forward to. So with that, I think... That's another episode of SF Crossing the Gulf. Bye.